You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 23rd of November 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, cut your power consumption and be ready for a cold winter. Ukrainians are told to be prepared as Russian strikes disable the country's power supply. Also coming up, the UK rolls out the red carpet and everything else for the South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa. In times of uncertainty and instability, a relationship such as ours is particularly important. We'll also have the latest on the surprisingly inconclusive results in the Malaysian elections and we'll go through the newspapers and the business news and find out why you and I will be choosing the most important word of 2022. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First to look at what else is happening in today's news. At least 10 people have been killed in a shooting at a supermarket in the US state of Virginia. The US Supreme Court has ordered the former President Donald Trump's tax forms to be released to a Democratic-controlled congressional committee. And workers have reportedly protested at the world's biggest iPhone factory in the Chinese city of Shenzhou. And Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro has challenged the election he lost last month to his left-wing rival, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, the head of Ukraine's national power grid has described the effect of Russia's military strikes on the country's power stations as colossal. Ukrainians have been warned they faced a cold, dark winter after the chief executive of Ukrainigo told a briefing that practically no thermal or hydroelectric stations had been left unscathed by Russia's attacks. Well, to get the latest on that and other issues surrounding the conflict in Ukraine, I'm delighted to say Stephen DL, regular voice on Monocle 24, the writer and broadcaster and Russia analyst joins me now. Good morning to you, Stephen. Good morning, Emma. Good morning, everyone. So we have the, 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 the chief executive of the, the, of the national power grid in Ukraine saying there is a power generation deficit. We can't generate as much energy, energy as consumers can use. This bodes for a long, cold winter, doesn't it? It does indeed. Um, the estimate I've seen is uh, uh, that roughly $2 billion worth of uh, Ukraine's energy infrastructure has been destroyed. Um, now that's a huge figure, obviously. Um, it, it just shows just how, in one sense, how weak Russia is in this war now, because they're losing the, the war on the battlefield. They've been pushed right back. Uh, to the, um, the, uh, the left bank of the river Dnipro. They've been pushed out of Kherson, the one major gain that they'd made. Um, and it emphasizes not only the weakness, but also how Putin is a man who is driven by resentment, how he is totally vindictive. Um, th- this is what you do when you're, uh, if, you're, if you're Putin, um, because you can't possibly admit you've made mistakes in this war. You can't possibly say, actually, Let's 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 try and get some you know, a peace deal and let's let or let's pull out of your country. Um, so what do you do? You attack the civilian population effectively. Um, they've been attacking them for the last few months and destroying blocks of flats and, and killing thousands of civilians anyway. 
But now what, what you do to be really vindictive as winter is coming. And remember, you know, winter in Ukraine is cold. I mean, you get lots of snow, you get temperatures below freezing for a long, uh, lot of the time. Uh, and so destroying the power infrastructure really is a nasty way to go about conducting this war. And it shows that Putin is not just about seizing territory. He wants to wipe Ukraine off the face of the earth. Um, not just that. He There is also a, um, a threat that's emerged in the last couple of days that, it, that Russia wishes to restrict gas supplies to Western Europe through the only pipeline still connecting the region, saying that warning that it could lower flows through the Ukraine from next week. It's one of those arguments, isn't it, that we've seen before where Russia says we will slightly cut uh, supply and slightly cut production and yet something bigger happens. Yes, I mean, when you hear these warnings from, or threats really, from Moscow, um, expect something worse to happen. Uh, of course, they've tried to use an excuse. They've tried to say, oh, the Ukrainians are siphoning off gas. It's supposed to be going to Moldova. Um, it comes back to that uh, phrase that a, a, um, a Twitter user called Darth Putin uses of never believe anything till the Kremlin denies it. Um, and so, that they'll be denying that this is because of, of any reason that they're trying to uh, put more pressure on, on the Ukrainian people or Ukrainian power grid. But of course, that's what it is. Um, and this is yet another example for the whole of Europe that we shouldn't be dependent on Russia for energy supplies. Just describe a little bit what, what the threat is. You mentioned the, 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 um, the accusations that Russia has made that Ukraine is siphoning off gas supplies which are de de destined for Moldova and then said it will restrict supplies to Western Europe. What, what exactly could that look like? As simple as turning off, turning, turning off the tap or turning it down, first of all, so there's a, a slower flow of gas. But they could simply turn it off. They've done this before, of course. Um, Ukraine has a history of knowing that Russia twice in the past 20 years, even less, uh, has, has done this. Literally just, just turned off the gas, saying you know, it's, it's, it's a threat. It's, a, um, it's, it's that nasty edge to what Russia is doing. Again, it's all pretty nasty. But, but this idea of particularly having a go at what is doing something that's going really to affect the civilian population. Just to turn off the gas and blame them for, for, because, because of what they've been doing. Uh, it's, it's straight out of the Russian rule book and it's not new. Just tell us who actually still is dependent on, on Russian energy in, within Europe. Well, Germany still wants Russian energy. Germany has been heavily dependent. Probably 40% of uh, Germany's gas in recent years has been coming from, uh, from Russia. Um, they are, of course, as with everyone else in Europe, seeking alternative supplies. But uh, that isn't an easy thing to do. You can't just say one day, right, we're, we're not buying yours, we're going to buy someone else's. It takes a lot of uh, preparation, a lot of organisation. Um, so uh, a number of European countries, I can't give you the exact figures for each country, um, but uh, Europe has been too heavily dependent on gas. It's one thing where Britain has actually been in a slightly better position because Britain's been uh, receiving far less Russian gas, um, probably less than 10% for some years now. So it's been much easier here for us to say, well, we'll get alternative sources such as uh, LNG, liquid nat natural gas from the United States. Um, but uh, the, Europe has been too dependent and it is moving away as quickly as it can from dependence on Russian gas. And they say that hopefully by next year, by the almost early, at least in 2023, um, they won't have to rely on Russian gas. But it's it's been a long drawn out process. If you think it'll be 
probably a war, a, a year since the start of the war, before Europe can really turn away from Russian gas. It's been an interesting time in Germany. Um, there are reports that there is a, um, up on the North Sea coast, engineers have built the country's first import terminal for liquefied natural gas, LNG, that you've just mentioned there. It's taken them less than 200 days to do it. Now, this is a country that used to take, what, 60% of its gas from Russia. If more countries are able to do this, what effect does that have on Russia? It hits the Russian economy. I mean, this is ultimately with all the games that the Russians are playing uh, and they're trying to brazen it out. But then you get occasionally sober voices in Moscow, like the head of the, the central bank recently saying, um, actually, guys, the, um, these Western sanctions are really going to hit us. And they're, they're, it's, it's the creeping effect because, for example, the Russian army um, or the Russian arms suppliers for the army cannot now make the smart weapons they were making before because they don't have things like the semiconductors, the things they were getting from the West, which they're not now getting. So um, they, they'll try and brazen it out and say, ha, Western sanctions, uh, so what? So we don't have the latest iPhone, we don't care. Um, it's it's behind the scenes, it's getting worse and worse for uh, for, for Russia, particularly in terms of Russian industry. And, and it'll be the same with, with um, oil and gas. And the problem for Russia will be, and this is a, a drum I've been banging for many years, going back to when I was running the Russell British Chamber of Commerce, saying you need to develop small and medium business. And they haven't. They're so dependent on uh, energy uh, exports and things like timber that if the West isn't buying them, they're in trouble. They, they can't just simply switch all the gas, for example, that was going to Europe off to the Far East, even if the Chinese want more. They come from different gas fields. This is where Russia as a huge country has got a problem because it costs a lot of money to take the gas from the Western Siberian oil, uh, gas fields over to the East. So the, the, uh, the, the creeping effect of this is going to be worse for Russia than actually for anyone else. How much is this going to affect the Russian population in terms of um what their well their relationship with their leader Vladimir Putin I and mean, it's been confirmed that Putin will meet some of the mothers of the reservists who are fighting in Ukraine there is a sense there that that is very much a public gesture to drum up support and sympathy that, that's what it is it's a gesture because the, the russian people are gradually realizing that you know the war is going badly uh, their living standards are falling it it's it's taking time as i say the sanctions they've they they've rebranded a lot of their shops to, that were Western shops to, to pretend that they're just as good as they were. Um, they're not because Russia can't produce the goods. Um, and this, this meeting that Putin is going to have um, was called by the Council of Mothers and Wives, which is a small um, NGO, effectively, non-governmental organisation that um, has been pushing for soldiers' rights for a long time and, and indeed for mothers and wives' rights. Uh, they don't want their, their boys and their husbands being sent off to this war. Um, and it's, this is a very delicate one for Putin um, because it's, it's the power of women. These, these, these women, many of them, if they've already lost their sons to the war, what else have they got to lose? They're not afraid to stand up and, and, and make their voice heard. But what Putin has done in saying agreeing to this meeting is that he hasn't allowed anyone from the committee of this Council of Mothers and Wives to, to join the meeting when it, whenever it's going to take place. They haven't said yet. In the next few days is what they're saying. And so what what he's going to do, he's going to make it a, a classic, what the Russians call pakazucha, a something to, just done for show. So he will uh, um, have what 
the the, the committee members are saying uh, are just um, hand-picked, as they call them, pocket wives, uh, women who won't be won't speak up and say what they really feel. So he's going to have a meeting with them, and that'll be publicised. Oh yes, look, I'm listening to the mothers. I'm listening to, but he's not really listening to the ones who really count. And they will make their voices heard nonetheless. And you, he's he's arrested already thousands of people because they've called the war a war or because they've had a protest. Um, but. The, the mothers are the ones uh, who uh, can be very determined, as, as ladies can be, uh, and uh, they are a force to be reckoned with. Um, and I think that we'll see that more and more in the months ahead. Finally, briefly, if you wouldn't mind, Stephen, I mean, how much of a force are they to be reckoned with? Because I remember at the beginning of this war, when Russia first invaded Ukraine, you said, you just wait. Public support will change when the coffins start to come home. Now, the US is estimating that up to 100,000 Russians have died. This is unconfirmed. But surely that must have had some significant effect. It will have had a significant effect. What the, of course, the, the problem in Russia with the media is that it's, it's, there's a very tight lid kept on it. Um, all independent media has been silenced. Um, uh, I, I make no uh, apologies for giving an advert for Medusa, uh, spelt with a Z, Medusa, um, which is a very good Russian language uh, media organisation, which is outside the country. They have their people, though, throughout Russia who send back what's actually happening. And if you pick through Medusa every day, uh, you see examples of, of protest. You see examples of, of uh, people actually raising their voices, asking questions. You see examples of people being arrested. Um, there was another one I saw only this morning of uh, someone who... Uh, put a video uh, from Butcher, which he'd seen on, on social media. He put that online uh, and is now threatened with 10 years in prison for doing so. So um, there, there are brave acts still going on. But in, in time, uh, and I, as I say, I come back to the mothers again. These are people, when you've lost your son, you live in, a, in, in, a, in poor conditions anyway, and you think, what else have I got to lose? And as these, these women raise their voices, um, I, I think more and more people will start to listen. Stephen Deal, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're with The Globalist. Fifteen fourteen in Kuala Lumpur, 7.14am here in London. Now, Malaysia went to the polls at the weekend. The result was a hung parliament, with neither the opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim nor the former Premier Muhyiddin Yassin winning the simple majority they needed to form a government. Now, the King says he will be the one who picks the next Prime Minister after his suggestion that the two work together was rejected. Well, Noor Amelia Hilda is a writer based in Kuala Lumpur and joins me now. Good afternoon, Noor. Good afternoon. Hi. Were we expecting a hung parliament here? Well, I think we weren't really expecting the results that we're having now, but it's been about three days now and we still don't have a prime minister. So what um, Muhyiddin Yassin and Anwar Ibrahim are doing now is they're kind of scrambling to get the support of MPs to secure enough backing to form a coalition government. And now the king is involved and we're still kind of waiting to see who will be the next leader. Um, we will persist with your line. It's not the most reliable, but we'll keep going until until we can, can no longer. But Nor, just explain to us why there has been this uh, sudden change in what has been a politically very stable 
um, environment for, for, for a very long time. Well, I think the political tensions that we're facing now can be uh, traced back to, I think, back in 2020, just before the pandemic started, um, where we had this um, political crisis called the Sheraton Move, where um, it kind of toppled um, Mahadeh's then government. And I think a lot of the infighting that we're facing now can be traced back to then. Uh, so explain to us a little bit about what happens now. We now have the king saying that he will be involved. What? Just explain to us, I mean, how much of a surprise is that? Is that normal practice? And what is likely to happen? Right. So the king, or um, we call him the young Dipritwan Agong, he will usually have to intervene when the leading contenders can't secure enough support to form a coalition government. So the king acts as a kind of advisor in these cases and also as the final seal of approval. Um, but um, I guess it's not really um, unexpected in some ways because uh, previously he he was the one who appointed Muhyiddin um, Yassin when Mahadi's government collapsed. And he also appointed the current uh, caretaker, Ismail Sabri. So we are kind of waiting to see what will happen next. Um, I think today he announced that he'll be meeting with rulers from other states um, to come up with um, an opinion on who will be the next leader. So I think we'll have to wait till tomorrow till we'll get, we'll get some kind of answer from the palace. No, Amelia Hilda, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Malaysia. Still to come on today's programme, Goblin Mode and Metaverse are in contention to be Oxford's word of the year. We'll find out this year the decision will be made by us. Stay with us on The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Now, at a state banquet in London last night, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa was told by Britain's new King Charles that we must acknowledge wrongs to unlock the power of the future. President Ramaphosa was sitting beside King Charles as he delivered what's been suggested is a reset of the Commonwealth under his new reign. Well, joining me from Cape Town is Christopher Vandom, his senior research fellow at the Chatham House Africa programme. Uh, very good morning to you, Christopher. Morning, Emma. How are you? Uh, very well, thank you. Um, and, and quite astonished by the level of pomp and circumstance afforded to this state visit yesterday. It was really, it was huge, wasn't it? It was. And uh, it's been quite nice, actually, to see some of that being replayed on social media this morning by South Africans themselves, uh, particularly South Africans in the UK, demonstrating a level of pride uh, in the way in which their president has been welcomed in London. So that's been quite nice to see. Um, because the, just explain to us the relationship between South Africa and the United Kingdom. It has not always been quite as uh, delightful, has it? <laughs> no, it hasn't. And I think that it's been quite significant. The speech that Ramaphosa gave uh, to the joint sitting of Parliament yesterday acknowledged this. 
and he drew on quite a visual comparison of there's a statue of Queen Victoria near Parliament in Cape Town and a statue of Mandela in Parliament Square in London. Uh, and he emphasized this in, on pointing out that this has been a relationship of colonialism and dispossession. But he also pointed out that this is now also a relationship of redemption. And I think that's what the, the sense of reset and refresh and renewal, both with the new king, but also uh, a recognition from both sides that there are very strong country to country and people to people links here. They haven't always been easy. Uh, it is born out of a long history um, that isn't pretty, um, but is one that is really important for both sides and one which both sides are quite keen to reinforce and move forward with. Indeed, I mean, Ramaphosa's words were, were full of dynamism. He says a strong partnership between South Africa and the United Kingdom could make a significant contribution to multilateralism and the achievement of consensus on critical global Issues. It is essential that we reform the international institutions on which we rely in times of crisis and need. I mean, he's saying two things there, isn't he? Firstly, we have a, a shared power and a, set and, and a shared energy. But secondly, things need to change within the structure that we have. Exactly. And it's, his, uh, his speech was particularly interesting for that. He mentioned um, uh, after... What you've uh, just quoted there, he goes on to refer to the United Nations. Uh, he goes on to refer to the Commonwealth. Now, these are both areas where uh, South Africa um, has been pushing for a greater level of equality. And kind of core to South Africa's sense of place in this world is this idea of independent sovereignty and the primacy of sovereignty that... Uh, South Africa, having fought for its independence, having fought against apartheid, having fought for democracy, uh, is owed or is entitled to a place in the world on an equal footing to other countries. Uh, and so there's a lot of that underpinning the, the language around partnership, the language around multilateralism is underpinned by this sense of, yes, things do need to or we are expecting from South Africa a, an equal place in these institutions that determine global politics. What is it that South Africa and the United Kingdom could change jointly? Where is this influence that could be felt? You mentioned the UN and within the Commonwealth, but, but in terms of dealing with further issues, because Cyril Ramaphosa mentioned the fact that you know we live in a time of crisis at the moment. Yeah. So I think that those, um, that those institutions of global governance are important, and I think that that is... Um, the UN is a is an area of focus for the South Africans for a uh, for the reform of the UN, um, and also um, uh, the Commonwealth is obviously interesting given that uh, the Queen um, was the head of the Commonwealth since the independence of most of the countries um, uh, that were in it, with um, most of those countries gaining independence since her uh, accession to the throne. Um, I think. On a more practical basis, where there's uh, room for greater support is around the bilateral relationship. Um, many of the discussions today are more focused on uh, economic and trade issues and uh, greater cooperation on that. And also this issue of climate change, which has been a consistent theme throughout the state visit, but also within South Africa's own um, uh, foreign affairs at the moment, given that they are going to be receiving eight or there's a pledge of 8.5 billion um, from Western nations, including the UK, 
the US, Germany, France, the European Union uh, for uh, support for a energy transition in South Africa, this Just Energy Transition Partnership. Uh, and South Africa is taking quite a big role um, on the continent, not only being the first country to get one of these uh, Just Energy Transition Partnerships, but really trying to spell out where it sees its energy needs uh, and how it sees um, climate change and how uh, countries of the global south can deal with climate change with the support of the, the global north. So really kind of within that wider um, uh, dynamic of, you know, those who were admitters versus those who were um, those who, who suffer most from climate change. So any, uh, energy, the environment and climate change are going to be big parts of uh, of this visit and also partly because um, these are really uh, important issues for the new king himself. Um, prior to taking the throne, uh, he was very well known for his position on environmental issues. Um, let's talk a little bit more, therefore, about what King Charles said at a state banquet last night. I briefly quoted him at the, at the start, the, the, the idea we must acknowledge wrongs to unlock the power of the future. Um, wrongs that have shaped our past um, and unlocked the power of our common future. Um, much of the, the press in the United Kingdom here is saying that this is Prince, sorry, King Charles, I'm still doing it, lots of us are. Um, <laughs> King Charles is uh, trying to reset the Commonwealth in some way. I mean, what's been the reaction where you are? Um, yeah, the reaction here is one of, um, uh, this is a really important state visit, but it is one where uh, his political detractors on the ground here will be looking for an opportunity to say, uh, you see, this is a guy who's kowtowing to, um, to the monarchy. Uh, the monarchy is an incredibly um, uh, divisive issue here and, and very unpopular. Um, not in ter not in terms of the individuals, but as as an institution, uh, and that was seen with the reaction from South Africa and even the official formal reaction from uh, South Africa and from South African ministers and government figures uh, around the passing of the late Queen. This really kind of awkwardness around acknowledging um, what an instrumental woman she was, uh, the visits here to South Africa, and the kind of personal affinity for her, but all linked into this very awkward relationship that South Africa has had with that monarchy. Um, and, and so I think that the it's really important for this message of kind of Commonwealth renewal uh, to be landing with countries like South Africa, um, where there is this particularly um, kind of fierce aversion to that. And again, linked into this primacy of sovereignty within the way in which South Africa sees itself. So acknowledging that past, but demonstrating that there's a clear move forward is really important, partly because I think that King Charles uh, isn't going to be afforded the same type of legitimacy and authority that the Queen had as a figurehead of the Commonwealth, given that she was the monarch during that wave of independence. There's now a lot of questioning around um, the position that Prince Charles has at that head. And I think that he's keen to um, to take a, uh, a lesser role than she did. Tell us a little bit more about actually what the Commonwealth can now do. Um, one wonders whether actually being a member of the Commonwealth is is 
a, a sort of a secret weapon that could really be um, exploited and enjoyed, given the diversity and the wealth of experience and resources. And it, it is something that perhaps a, with the, the arrival of a new king, a fresh look could be taken at the Commonwealth to see, you know, not necessarily just channeled through London, but Commonwealth nations have this untapped sort of gold mine. Absolutely. And and the the Commonwealth itself, I think, has a very, well, the Commonwealth and Commonwealth countries have a very different view of uh, the institution than is often portrayed or considered by the British establishment. It is seen as far more of this, um, uh, an institution of equal partners. And that's one of the reasons why uh, many countries on the African continent um, uh, are not only and of strong and fond members of of the Commonwealth, but also you see new countries joining, um, Gabon and Togo uh, being the latest to join the Commonwealth. Um, Neither of them were British colonies, so continue a trend of uh, a breaking of um, of Commonwealth being limited to only um, former uh, British Empire countries. Uh, a tradition that builds on uh, Mozambique joining, Rwanda joining. Uh, There are ambitions for Angola to join. Uh, And so this is an organization that has been, uh, it has been having a conversation around um, uh, renewal and reformation for a long time. And and this uh, is part of that. But it is an organization that actually is, uh, does provide an important platform of equality, like I said, for a number of uh, of these countries. Christopher Vandam, joining me on the line from Cape Town. Thank you so much for joining me on Monocle 24. The time here in London is just nudging 7.30. In a moment, we'll be heading to Brussels to find out what as well to get the latest chapter in its relationship with Hungary. But first, a quick summary of some of the other headlines we're following today. At least 10 people have been killed in a shooting at a supermarket in the US state of Virginia. The gunman, who's believed to be the manager of the Walmart store in the town of Chesapeake, opened fire before turning the gun on himself. The US Supreme Court has ordered the former President Donald Trump's tax forms to be released to a Democratic-controlled congressional committee. The move is a major blow to Mr Trump, who's tried for years to shield his tax returns from becoming public. Workers have protested at the world's biggest iPhone factory in China. Videos reportedly show hundreds of workers marching at the plant in the Chinese city of Shenzhou. Last month, a jump in Covid cases saw the campus locked down, but some workers broke out. And Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, has challenged the election he lost last month to his left-wing rival, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Mr Bolsonaro claims that some votes from machines aren't valid, but his claims seem unlikely to get far as Lula's victory has been ratified by the Superior Electoral Court. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, next week, Hungary is expected to receive billions of euros in funding from the EU. It's the end, or rather it should mark the end, of a long-running dispute between Brussels and Budapest about the upholding of EU rules in return for money. The reason why this might not be the end of the story is that some European Union lawmakers have warned the bloc's executive commission against giving the money over. Well, Suzanne Lynch is the chief Brussels correspondent for Politico and a regular voice here in Monocle 24. Good morning to you, Suzanne. Good morning, Emma. So just explain to us, bring us up to date the nature of this dispute. 
Yes, so Hungary uh, over the last few years has been increasingly isolated in the European Union. Prime Minister Viktor Orban has moved to the right as he's become, you know, he's solidified his his lead. He he won the election again in April back in Hungary. Uh, So he's now one of the the longest serving leaders within the EU. But the European Commission has long been concerned about standards of democracy, of things like media freedom, of corruption, of the independence of the judiciary, these kind of issues in Hungary. And it's a very difficult issue for the European Union because it's supposed to be upholding these kind of values and yet it has a member in its ranks that's flouting these norms. Poland also has fallen foul of the Commission but Hungary as well. Um, So it's now coming to a head because Hungary is due to get two sets of of money, if you like, from the EU. One is 5.8 billion. That is part of the pandemic recovery fund uh, that the European Union announced during COVID. And the other is more of the regular funding. And that's up to 7.5 billion euro in EU funds. They now have a system where there's conditionality on that. You have to have certain standards to get that money. And they've been holding back paying some of that money. But now the signals we're getting from the European Commission is that they will actually uh, pay out this money. Ultimately, Hungary has um, had to fulfil 17 steps or different measures uh, and the Commission is going to look at those. But we're getting all the signs that they will actually get that money. What are some, I mean, you don't need to list all 17 of them, but what's Hungary done actually to redeem itself in the eyes of the EU? Well, some of the things are changes to the way the judiciary is is uh, is run. The other is to do with media freedom, media plurality. And um, but we don't know the details yet. This was just reported last week. We don't know what they're negotiating uh, with them on. Um, so this is going to be poured over by the European Parliament in particular to see if they feel that enough has been done. Uh, by Hungary uh, to reach this. And really the suspicion is it hasn't, that you know they won't be able to change that much uh, in this uh, space of time. But it's a political issue. No one in the EU wants to look really like it's not giving Hungary money, particularly as they know that Orban will most likely use this as a stick to beat Brussels with. So he'll say, look, this is the European Commission again uh, being horrible to Hungary and that it will kind of feed that anti-European narratives that we see coming increasingly from Budapest. There is that resistance that I mentioned at the beginning of this item that there are lawmakers who, who are warning the Commission against unlocking this money. Yes, so this week the European Parliament is meeting in Strasbourg and uh, in a letter some of the main European political groups in the Parliament have urged uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission President, not to give in to pressure from Orban. They feel that the EU needs to make a stand on this, that they cannot you know, be seen to uh, move and and jeopardise and compromise on their own standards. And it says, you know, it points out this letter that, they're not, the, you know, the promises from Budapest are not sufficient to address some of the issues. And they talk about kleptocracy, corruption. There's a big fear that a lot of European funds end up going to um, allies of Orban um, and that maybe areas in Hungary that are not controlled by uh, Hungary, the Fidesz, Orban's party, are kind of short of cash. And there's just a whole issue of European funds. So um, they are they are pressurising Ursula von der Leyen to, to stay firm. And she's also going to get some of the pressure from within her own commission. Some commissioners, EU commissioners, are not happy with this. But as I say, the signals are that she will, they will ultimately unlock the funds. But then that has to be 
approved by all EU member states and that's going to be at a finance minister's meeting um, in early December. Every time Hungary is mentioned in terms of its relationship with the European Union, it isn't a country, it is one man, Viktor Orban, who becomes the centre of attention. I mean, if you look at the, the coverage that he's had in the last couple of days, he's been accused of blackmailing the EU by blocking joint decisions requiring unanimity to, to help Ukraine fight Russia. Um, he turned up with a scarf, a football scarf, with a picture of Greater Hungary, which was the old territory that existed before the Austro-Hungarian defeat in World War One, He's made everybody furious by that, especially the neighbours Romania and Ukraine, who appear to be part of Viktor Orban's map. I mean, how is it that one individual seems to be so able, effectively, to hold the European community by the short and curlies? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of anger over the fact that they, Hungary is now blocking a further 18 billion in aid for Ukraine next year. Um, it, the way, so in, in EU legislation, some rules, some laws only need a qualified majority of countries to back it, but some need unanimous agreement. So in, in some of those files where you do need unanimous agreement of all 27 countries, Hungary has been blocking some of those. So that's to do with the 18 billion for Ukraine. Um, it's to do with a new global corporate tax rate, for example. You know, I'd heard from officials that Hungary hadn't made no noises about this. And at the very last moment when it was about to be agreed that actually we don't agree with this. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people believe that it's effectively blackmailing the EU, saying, if you know, if you don't give us our money, we're going to block files. But look, Orban is extremely popular, obviously. Now, some people would say uh, that one of the reasons uh, he's winning these elections so decisively are because of problems in the electoral system, not least his absolute control or state control of the media, essentially, that there is very little space for the opposition. But there was great hopes in Hungary that the opposition uh, would maybe, uh, they, they got together different disparate groups early this year to fight that election in April. But no, Orban's party won. Um, even though he was pushing anti-LGBTQ uh, laws, um, those kind of cultural, hot-button cultural issues now are becoming big. In, in Hungary. And of course, there's a lot of soul searching in the EU. Should it be stronger towards Orban earlier in this process, back in 2015, around that time when he was getting particularly um, militant against Europe? But figures like Angela Merkel worked with him. He was a member of the EPP, the centre-right group in the European Union that includes Angela Merkel's party, for example. So, you know, by trying to ignore him and hoping the problem will go away, it hasn't really gone away. And uh, now we're in a situation where there's a country not upholding really what one would see as EU values um, and now threatening to block a lot of, of, lot of EU laws, including uh, help for Ukraine. You, Suzanne Lynch, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. You're the globalist. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Julie Norman, co-director of the UCL Centre on US Politics. Good morning, Julie. Good morning, Anna. And I'm delighted to say there is a satisfying rustle of paper. Yes, there is. Go for it. What have you found? 
Yeah, so there's a number of things as always. I was struck by the amount of stories about Iran in the news today and uh, The Guardian and others noting that you know, the protests are really hitting just a, a real kind of critical turning point right now with a lot of crackdowns in the Kurdish area, uh, more reports of different kinds of, um, of, of arrests, of killings, of, uh, of sexual abuse and whatnot. Um, so I think uh, important to keep that highlight on the protest movements there, which have you know, now uh, numbered um, well over a thousand all across the country. Um, and this is coupled with the same day that we're hearing reports from um, the IAEA about uh, Iran uh, uh, enriching uranium, uranium up to uh, 60%, which is uh, quite high. Um, 90% is usually what we see as, as levels. So getting a lot of pressure internationally from there. So I, yeah. We have two different narratives going on, don't we? We have the the, the perpetual uranium enrichment narrative, which is uh, which is something that you know hovers around us the whole time. But this, in, this article in today's Guardian, it says that Iran's repression of anti-regime protests appears to have entered a dangerous new phase. Activists are accusing state forces of deploying heavy weapons and, and, and helicopters. And this is a sign that they are coming down hard on protests, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and again, that's that's nothing new. We've seen this kind of crackdown uh, building. But I do think the level of repression that we're seeing in the Kurdish area, at least by these reports, is a scaling up. We are seeing the deployment of the Revolutionary Guard, which had been uh, held back a bit in some of the past protests. And, uh, you know, it's an important time, I think, right now with World Cup, with other things on the world stage to to keep the, the world uh, focused there. This is this interesting thing, isn't it? The World Cup for Iran, at least, has been an incredibly powerful moment to showcase dissent. That's right. With with the risk that when you saw the, the, the Iranian team not singing the national anthem, you couldn't but think... What awaits you when you get home? Exactly. And actually, we saw that in the papers today, too, with um, an Iranian politician saying um, they will never allow anyone to insult our anthem. So worries that that team will face uh, reprisals when they return to the country. Okay, let's have a look at the story in the New York Times. Um, Somalia, an area which has arguably not seen the amount of coverage that it perhaps merits, or it certainly merits. We've been seeing... um, Obviously, the world's eyes have been looking at Ukraine and the world's eyes have been looking at Ethiopia and, you know, conflict desperate desperate times there. But Somalia is experiencing the worst drought in four decades. That's right. And Emma, I thought this story was important because it ties into so many other things that are going on in the world. The drought that's affecting Somalia right now is, is a perfect storm of different things. Part is climate change, which, of course, we've heard a lot about in this last week, but that's affecting this, uh, this part of Africa in particular in very severe ways. Also, of course, the knock-on effects of the Ukraine uh, conflict and the difficulty of getting uh, grain and other kinds of aid to uh, to Somalia. And of course, just internal problems as well in Somalia. And I think uh, uh, Declan Washington, the, the New York Times, did a really good job of highlighting the role of al-Shabaab, of some of the mil- militant groups that um, just make it that much difficult to, uh, to assist people who are in this kind of uh, condition right now. But it is an it's an astonishing story because it's when the New York Times really can do its job effectively. Right. There's there's proper reportage here, and there's you know there, there is a, there are astonishing figures. We're looking at half a million children at risk of starvation or death by the middle of next year. That's right. And we've seen these numbers just ticking up over the year. I remember being asked some questions about this back in the summer, and we've just seen the numbers go up now over 1 million displaced. Um, again, you know, hundreds of thousands now in, in starvation uh, kind of context rather than just food insecurity where it was before. Um, and again, I think it's it's challenging in a context like this where you're trying to balance humanitarian aid with you know an ongoing um, conflict or fragile state situation. And um, I think some of us who work in the aid sector, just it's, it's a challenge of how do you approach these things. Indeed. I mean, the, the, 
the article talks about a decades-long cycle of international intervention in Somalia, including billions of dollars in humanitarian aid and and military support. Yet this hasn't helped. That's right. And that's just one of the the, the contradictions, I think, of our assumptions. That if we just give money to something, it'll go away. And, and I think uh, conflicts like this, we, we see how difficult it is to address these complex issues. What suggestions are there being given that could be, not necessarily, I'm not asking for a solution in front of you, Julie. That would be a little much. Um, but what, what droplets of hope are there that could suggest that this could not necessarily be fixed, but could there could be something to help? Yeah, well, I, mean, I think the droplets are is that they come from different areas, right? Like we saw a movement from COP this last week of trying to assist developing nations that are affected by climate change. We saw um, elections earlier this fall in Somalia that brought in a new politician that some hope might uh, kind of, uh, you know, quell some of al-Shabaab's actions. We've seen some movement. The one place we've seen negotiations around Ukraine is in getting those those grain exports. So I do think there's, um, there's pockets of hope, but a situation like this is going to take a lot. Now, let's move on to a story we were talking about in the headlines a little while ago. Um, the president, sorry, former president, I don't know where we're quite up to in the in the sort of the, the journey that, that goes along in Brazil, but uh, Jair Bolsonaro defect, uh, defeated by Lula in the presidential elections last month. Um, everything's been ratified. Everyone's approved. Everything said it's absolutely fine. Only now has he popped up and Bolsonaro has said, I was robbed. Right. But timing's not great. A bit late. <laughs> Indeed, a bit late. And it's interesting because I think we all noted like he never officially conceded. So this was kind of a threat in the background. But as you noted, it had like the election results have been fully approved. The court has said to him, look, you need to bring a full audit of all the counts if you want us to look at this at all seriously. So in real terms, I don't see it moving forward at all. But what it does do is it just keeps his protest movement going. It keeps his uh, supporters just galvanized. And I think it does have a ripple effect in the region and even around the world um, with, you know, figures like Trump in my own country, people who want to uh, to challenge election results. And it keeps this kind of possibility open when we see people like Bolsonaro doing it. Indeed, because his reasons for um, for complaint are that um, in the I think the, se- the second runoff between the, the runoff between Lula and Bolsonaro happened at the end of October and um, Bolsonaro's team has done an audit it says. And it says that it's found its signs of, I'm quoting, irreparable malfunction in some electronic voting machines. True or not, how much does that plant the seed of doubt, not just in Brazil, but elsewhere? Oh, I think it has a big effect. I mean, anyone who has uh, you already, um, you know, either some might say conspiracy theories, but others maybe say legitimate, uh, you know, worries about about some of the new technologies and whatnot will jump on these kinds of um, allegations. And again, Bolsonaro is not the first to do it. Um, again, Trump did the very same thing in 2020 with talking about the uh, the election machines in the U.S. And unfortunately, it just pushes that narrative for people who are, are looking for something to latch on to, to doubt elections. OK, let's move on to Saudi Arabia. Um, the unlikely victor yesterday at the World Cup, uh, beating Argentina, making the headlines all around the world. And Saudi Arabia has... Uh, decided to give everybody a national holiday to it, say, wow. Indeed. yeah, And I think this is an interesting story for lots of different reasons. I think one, um, you know, sorry to Argentina fans, but people do tend to like an underdog story in the World Cup, especially in these opening rounds and whatnot. Um, but, but Saudi's a difficult underdog sometimes to rally behind um, because of the human rights allegations, because of, um, you know, the crown prince's, um, you know, various different kinds of activities. So I think it raises some questions of of who do we root for? And, uh, you know, do you, do you feel happy about this? Do we feel confident? 
compromised about this. Um, and and you know, what does it mean for the players? How much do players really represent their state or not? Saudi has this problem, doesn't it, that everything it does in terms of soft power be it pushing tourism, opening up society to a certain degree, is always accused of saying you are trying to launder a difficult, hard image. Whereas actually, if you just love football and you happen to be Saudi, you're stuck in the middle here. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, a lot of my work is in the Middle East. You know, the region is very just excited about a Middle East win. We see different kind of regional unity around this. Um, interestingly, like Saudi and Qatar are often at, at odds with each other. This has kind of united them. So, so we see a lot of positives, I think, among people. But at the same time, there's kind of this cloud of the larger political climate over it, too. I think we shall see more and more of Saudi Arabia in the coming, coming years and months, no doubt. Julie Norman, thank you so so much for joining us on The Globalist. You as Monocle 24. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's talk business now on The Globalist. Rachel Puppetsoni joins me down the line from Perth. Good evening, Rachel. Hello. Lovely to have you with us. What uh, news from the business world where you are, please? It's all been about the Reserve Bank of New Zealand today. Uh, They've lifted their uh, official cash rate by 75 basis points. That's the biggest increase they've ever done uh, since the bank uh, started uh, back in 1999. And with it came uh, the warning that uh, the bank expects that the country will enter recession uh, in the next 12 months or so. It'll be pretty shallow, but it will be long-lasting. They're forecasting four quarters of negative growth, but saying that GDP will only decline by about a percentage point during that time. Now, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand was one of the first central banks of developed countries to start lifting rates in uh, this cycle that we're seeing globally. They they first hiked rates back in October 2021. The official cash rate is now 4.25%, but the expectation is that the bank will not stop there. They've got inflation above 7%, unemployment very low at 3.3%, house prices rose about 40% uh, to the peak during COVID. So the Reserve Bank of New Zealand very keen to temper some of that uh, volatility that exists across the economy, uh, with many economists now forecasting that the official cash rate could reach about 5.5% by May next year. Just explain to us how much of a surprise this is, because we are seeing so many countries facing the same fate. It is a surprise because it is such a big increase. And and what's interesting, I guess, is you compare it to where I am in Australia, uh, we're literally next door, and we've got very similar um, headline kind of figures. Our inflation rate 7.3%, New Zealand 7.2%, our unemployment 3.4%, New Zealand 3.3%. But our Reserve Bank has actually started to slow its pace of rate hiking, which is in contrast uh, to what we're seeing in other countries around the world. Uh, And so I I guess perhaps we're the outlier where things are slowing down here in Australia, still seeing that rate hiking cycle. But it is unusual to see New Zealand hike by three quarters of a percentage point. But it's worth pointing out that the central bank there won't meet again until February. So there's a couple of months there where there will be no activity. So perhaps they're trying to get 
get on the front foot to make up for what will be lost time over that sort of Christmas New Year period. Well, let's talk about Christmas and New Year. This is traditionally when retailers have their bumper crop land. Um, the difficulty is, is that you know we're in incredibly tightened financial times. Um, so we, we're looking at Black Friday this week. This week, I've, you know, On my internet, it's been going on for about seven years. But the, the, the idea that Black Friday is that chance when we all go out and spend, is it the same this year or are we looking at a different approach? Well, retailers obviously will be wanting us to spend and um, like your email inbox, uh, mine's been getting full of all sorts of emails about um, various discounts. But of course, the thing is, as we've been talking about, with central banks increasing rates, people have less disposable income. Uh, the money they do have uh, isn't going as far as it used to with energy prices soaring, grocery bills also on the way up. So the expectation is that people will not spend like they had perhaps during during those COVID years when there was a lot of pent-up demand and we couldn't really do anything, so you might as well go shopping online, uh, the growth is still expected to occur uh, during these Black Friday sort of Christmas sales. Uh, the US National Retail Federation, for example, forecasting that sales through November and December will rise somewhere between 6 and 8%, but compare that to the 13% jump that uh, was recorded uh, in the States last year. So definitely much more muted growth uh, expected. Even uh, Amazon, one of those uh, huge uh, e-commerce uh, uh, companies, also expecting that re- uh, consumers will spend much less uh, on the sales and Christmas period this year. Rachel Puppetzoni, thank you so much for joining us. You're with Monocle24. today which is your favorite out of the following words and expressions goblin mode hashtag i stand with and metaverse because it is from among these three that the public will choose the oxford word of the year this year and it's the first time that the vote has been opened up to you and me fiona mcpherson is a senior editor with the oxford english dictionary i'm delighted to say she joins me very good morning to you fiona Good morning. So for those of us who don't know intimately what the Oxford Word of the Year is, could you explain to us the, the, the whole premise? Yeah, it's. I suppose in a way it's a chance for us lexicographers to have a little bit of fun. You know, all the year when we're working, we're thinking about preparing entries to include in a dictionary and we have to think about things in a different way. But Word of the Year is a chance for us to analyse language, look to see what words have been big. They may be ephemeral words. They may have captured, you know, the idea is that they'll capture something of the year, if not the whole year. It will speak to some kind of experience, but we can do that without necessarily thinking, is this big enough yet to go into the dictionary? Although, of course, sometimes some of the words already are in the dictionary. Language works like that. But it's, yeah, it's a little bit of fun to try and think about what the world has been preoccupied with and how that's shown in our language. Okay, thank you for that. So uh, the three ones we've got are goblin mode, which is actually Uh two words, not one. Uh, Hashtag I stand with. I've never thought that hashtag was a letter, but here we go. And (laughs) and metaverse. So, I mean, first of all, it looks like we're pushing the boundaries of the way that that words and, you know, what we we define as a word. Um, But could you tell us what each one means, please, and why you thought they were so important? 
I can. Uh, and we'll get on to the two word thing in a second. Okay, uh, thank you. So, <laughs> metaverse is a kind of hypothetical virtual reality environment uh, where users will interact with each other and the avatars in an immersive way. Um, and it's sometimes been thought of recently as a, a perhaps an extension or even a replacement for the internet as we know it. We chose that because although it's been in our dictionaries since um, since for, well, for quite a while, actually, and it was first coined in 1992, but it's been a relatively low frequency word in general usage until this year, where we've seen it almost quadruple in um, in usage in amongst the general public. So for that reason, it's saying something about the way that we're behaving now, about the things that are interesting us, and that's why it was chosen. Okay. Gobl one. Goblin mode also suggests the way that we're behaving. It basically involves giving up and sitting on the sofa and eating bad food. Is that right? Oh, God, doesn't that sound good? Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. <Yeah. laughs> and for... And in the terms of lexicography, we think of two words as one word or a phrase as one word if it conveys us a particular uh, unit of meaning, as we say, but that doesn't sound quite so exciting. But you're absolutely right. Goblin mode, again, we've seen surge this year, probably because of behaviour maybe that we learned during lockdown. You know, we had obviously less to do, fewer opportunities. So we kind of turned in on ourselves and were able to just indulge ourselves in a in a bit more of a slovenly way and and people maybe have seen actually there are some benefits in that so you know let, let let's carry on when we can so so um, far so far sorry to interrupt you Fiona but we, we, we're going to try and cram as much as we can in, in the time that we have so but so far 2022 is when we gave up reality and went and ate crisps on a sofa um, it, it doesn't yes. look good at the minute but but hashtag I stand with should hopefully redeem us well, yes. Um, and it's a way we saw this really surge, particularly in March this year. Um, it's a way of expressing solidarity or showing support, notably online, obviously, with the use of a hashtag um, and aligning yourself with a particular group. Some people will then say, well, that's a little bit easy because it's, you know, just, you know, it's easy to just do that online without actually doing anything direct. But it's a way, I think, of being able to express that support. Um, from a distance, if you like. However, and going to your darker side here again, it's also shown us how factions can really easily emerge because for every I stand with X, there's a corresponding stand with Y. And often those those are in opposition, shall we say. So it's also speaking, as well as speaking to positivity and solidarity, it could also be showing where we're actually really still quite divided. Tell me finally, Fiona, the fact is, is that because we are all online, because our, our culture now is, is global and virtual in so many ways, mm. how quickly are we now inventing and discarding words? I don't think we're necessarily inventing them quickly or, or at any greater speed. I think we're just seeing them quicker. They can disseminate so much more quickly. So somebody could be sitting in one part of the world and using a word and then immediately someone else elsewhere in the world, thousands of miles away, will see it and he or hear it. And I think that in that sense, we are we're probably aware that there are more words or more terms, but whether or not that's really if there are actually more of them or it's just that we're aware of them, I, th I think it's probably just that they can spread so much more quickly. Fiona, we have about 10, 15 seconds. Where can we vote for, for Goblin Mode, Metaverse and hashtag I stand with? <laughs> if you go to www.oxfordwordoftheyear.com, 
you can vote there. Make, make, make your voice heard. And you can do it from the comfort of whatever comfortable chair you're sitting in. Thank you in so much. In <laughs> goblin mode. Uh, Fiona McPherson, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Thanks to our guests and to the producers, Emma Searle and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researchers were Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands. And our studio manager was Nora Holm. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London. And The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.